0: suncast is brought to you by sungrow providing clean power for all suncast is also brought to you by trina solar
1: he said really a lot of times you can really simplify that down to success and if you are successful then people will look back and say you were persistent about something and if you are unsuccessful then you are more viewed as being stubborn and i think that's kind of an interesting point
0: Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Welcome to episode 132 of And as always, I'm so humbled that you've chosen to invest your greatest resource here in Suncast. That of course is your time. Have you ever gotten into a conversation with someone only to realize that you were totally unprepared for how much knowledge and value you were about to receive? Well, that's probably how I'd best describe the following interview. At least that was my experience. The unassuming and mild-mannered entrepreneur and scientist who's today's featured founder has spent his entire career working on technology many of us don't even realize exists and which may come to completely reconfigure how your solar cells function. Heck, this guy invented an entire new category of solar cell, for God's sake. Ben Damiani is the co founder of Solar Inventions, and his research has already dramatically improved solar cell manufacturing, but there's more to come. You can find more great founders' stories and solar startup advice in the other 130 plus episodes archived at mysuncast.com. While you're there, check out our Suncast tribe, where you can be part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. This week's tribe exclusive gives you insight into all new kinds of degradation that Ben says can impact your solar module production by as much as 10%. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on SunCast. Hey, Warrior, I've been trying to jump right into the episodes, but before we begin today, I'd like to just wish you a Merry Christmas. And for all my listeners who maybe don't celebrate Christmas, I wish you a happy holidays. And I pray for you the same thing that I pray for myself and my family, peace, joy, and contentment as you reflect on and close out another calendar year. It's been wonderful sharing this year with you all, and I'm excited for what 2019 has in store i won't be producing new content next week as i'm taking some time here in december to actually rest and recharge with my kiddos but i do encourage you to check out the archives if you're hankering for more suncast and also stay tuned to the outro message because i have a solid podcast recommendation for you truly my favorite piece of journalism for the year don't miss it all right here we go with ben damiani all right solar warriors we're going to have a conversation today with someone that, while he might not say this, I believe is a veritable genius. The very name of his company gives a little away to uh, the antics that they're up to. Ben Damiani is the partner and chief scientist of a company called Solar Inventions. If that sounds familiar and you're a longtime listener, we just interviewed Bill Nussey, the CEO of Solar Inventions and also <clears throat> writing his book, Freeing Energy. And uh, that's how I met Ben, sitting in the same office both were introduced to me by Andy Klump, who should be noted is an advisor for Solar Inventions. But Ben is not, by any stretch of the imagination, in the shadow of any of uh, those people. I've mentioned he has spent his entire career in solar, like many of you. His inventions have enjoyed global reach through his work with early pioneers, companies like SolarWorld and Suniva. He's worked around the world commercializing new solar technologies, and when I say new, you're gonna—it's gonna blow your mind. Some of the things that this guy's working on, and some categories he's invented that you may not even realize not only exist but are changing the way solar is done. Ben Damiani, thanks for being on Suncast.
1: Thanks for having me, Nico.
0: It's a pleasure. Yeah, man. Sorry if I uh, pumped you up too high there. I, I, don't, I don't intend to. It blows my mind when I get a chance to just hang out with someone with a PhD in electrical engineering, somebody who intentionally from the very beginning started their journey uh, academically to understand how solar power can be harnessed. I think that's probably the easiest way to say it. But instead of me trying to explain to our Suncast audience who you are, would you take us a little bit back to your origin story? What got you interested in solar power at such a young age? And why has it become the thrust of how you want to engage your career for the past 20 plus years?
1: You know, I think it really started when I moved out to California as a teenager, a little bit before that, I was 12. And living in California has a lot of exposure to what challenges we face as humans. And seeing a lot of the pollution and water shortages and different things like that, I just was immediately engaged in, you know, how can I contribute and, and make things a little bit better and so it really put me on a path of wanting to do something that was involved with clean energy and as I evolved and went through my education I, I always felt like I knew what I wanted to do I just didn't know what it was called and by the time that I reached into college there were uh, a couple of different programs or uh, clubs that I started one was a Formula One electric vehicle club and that was a lot of fun to see electric vehicles go 100 plus miles an hour in 1994. And that was a lot of fun. And then also involved working with Georgia Power and getting to have some exposure to some solar energy and what the problems and where those industry executives and experienced guys thought that solar energy was coming in. But the real, I guess, origin happened when I was graduating from Georgia Tech with my bachelor's and discovered that the keynote speech for my graduating class was from the premier US center for photovoltaics. And it was right there at Georgia Tech. And I just, that was what I was going to do right there. I knew that's
0: where I'm going. That's amazing. Right there from uh, undergrad. Undergrad, you were in engineering as well? I was electrical engineer at that time. I love it. We talked a little bit about the Formula One. That was still, that was a Georgia Tech, right? I mean, you guys have been involved in the, the solar racing and lots of different solar related aspects, but you weren't involved as an undergrad, necessarily in solar, but you were an electrical engineer. Just out of curiosity, what were the, those early Formula One, as I understand it, this was Gen One when Formula One was just exploring. Uh, they had basically made a call to universities to help figure out the chemistry. What were those cars powered by?
1: Yeah. So this was pre-lithium ion, actually. I was a little bit, uh, even before Mr. Musk, I think on this one, but Uh what was fun about it was, I guess there was like 10 different universities, 10 to 15 different universities that they just sent a chassis to and said, all right, fill it up. And it was the pre-show for the Cleveland Grand Prix that year. They gave everybody, you know, had a $25,000 budget and we went and raised a little bit more money, got batteries donated to us. And ultimately we just used regular lead acid car batteries. For a little while, it performed really well, but they died real quick. But the thing that I'm going to take away from that experience beyond anything, as we started the, the, the pre-show for the Cleveland Grand Prix, what we ended up doing was we had professional drivers. You raced on the same track that the Cleveland Grand Prix was. And as we watched, right, we were in the pit crew ready to change out our batteries halfway through, and you'd see these cars go by, look exactly like Formula One race cars, but it was silent. And so you just hear this.
0: And this is the nineties, right? Like this oh, yeah. is such an eerie experience. I got to imagine. It was. And it was, you know, we had a really shortened course,
1: but then, you know, fast forward another couple of hours and even one or two cars crank up with the real formula one. And it was rattling the buildings miles yeah, away. That's deafening. And it was just such an off experience for me. Like it, it was like, am I on earth? You know, it, it was just really, it was really strange. It was, it was a very impactful.
0: I actually would love to hear, obviously you're using lead acid batteries for the geeks out there. How were you controlling the power delivery on these early vehicles?
1: So we had MOSFET controller systems and it was very simple. I mean, it was all completely designed. I, it was really impressive to see what the guys at Georgia Tech could do. I had I I'd started the club, but I had reached out and got a mechanical engineer, a couple of mechanical engineers, an aeronautical engineer, and then we I had a professor that was in the mechanical engineering department as well. And they built everything from the transmission all the way through the CV uh, joints to go and keep the tires going. And diff- I mean, it was just such a learning experience for me that it was, it was really impressive.
0: You mentioned two books to me in our previous conversation that had a big impact in the way they sort of shaped your thoughts. Would you mind just giving a few moments here to that topic?
1: Sure. I think um, one of the things that, you and I talked about was a book that I was given by an English teacher in my high school, and that was Cry the Beloved Country. And what that book really left an impact on me was to get to the root of a problem and really understand, and that's how you can fix things. And Mm. the book was Cry the Beloved Country. And the main point of it was just because you have a lot of crime, it might not be, juice up your police force to suppress the crime. Mm. Or rather, maybe go in and get education and educate the people and then have something be more fair and, and really get to the root. And that's going to be a much more sustainable long-term solution. And it really had an impact on going back to what I said, you know, growing up in California, I felt like I had a, a little bit of a preview into where we were going as a society and how were we going to continue and, and thrive. And that's a really important thing for me. It's, Something I try to drive home with our kids that we really want to be in a situation not to survive, but to thrive.
0: Could you help us understand your segue from undergrad through what might be considered corporate life back into the research lab?
1: I tried to approach it a little bit different in that I felt like at the time that I graduated with my PhD, that I had as good of an expertise as I could get in a specific field. And I went and interviewed with some solar companies but at the time i felt like i really maybe even was exposed to even greater technology in my graduate work and so knowing that i did have an interest to start a company potentially one day i decided to also interview with just some really advanced technology companies like intel lumileds and ge and ultimately went with intel because i felt like they were the most advanced technology company in the world and they gave me a great opportunity and i thought that would be very valuable in seeing how to run a company and how a, a good successful technology
0: is run, what they yeah. value. So I may have misunderstood. So you went straight from undergrad to PhD. You just kind of worked all the way through? I did. Okay. That makes sense. Uh and you know just to remind listeners, this is in the early nineties. For those who may not be familiar, you know, we've had guests here who talk a lot about the companies that were around at that time, mainly focused on off-grid or remote applications, but by and large, the innovation was in space technology, right? It was the space race and companies like Spectralab and Boeing were thinking through how to harness more and more technology or more and more power from every photon falling on on the cell, right, which still kept solar cells at exorbitantly high prices what was your perspective on the industry at that point that colored how you decided to lean into your research and, uh, and also the way that you wanted to design your career differently than sort of your traditional solar researcher?
1: Yeah. So that one of the the more shaping interviews that I had coming out of my, my PhD was the interview with Spectralab. And that was impressive to go see, you know, triple junction solar cells producing at like 36% efficient back in um, the early 2000s, wow. but the, the and and they, even at that time, they even still had a focus for having an earth-based technology, which would involve concentrator cells and these really high-efficiency solar cells. But they were based on more rare earth elements. And for me, as I had gone through school, you know, and, and maybe you know, correct or incorrect, you know, going back to "Cry the Beloved Country" and the lessons that I learned with you know, getting to deep solutions knowing that you know silicon based technology it's the most the second most abundant element in the world and yeah. everybody has it right everybody has that that element you know there's no shortage we there's way more silicon than there is us and so i just felt like that was kind of a seminal point to to really drive and, and capture with solar energy and that i think played a small part in my decision to to go and learn how to run a good technology company but You know, space exploration is huge, too. I I definitely don't want to take anything away from it, but I felt like my purpose was to do things on Earth. And for that, silicon was really a better solution for me.
0: I love it. So you went to Intel and spent a few years there before you jumped back into solar. What do you feel like you learned from your time at Intel that you bring now back into the solar industry?
1: It's surprising. I think I learned a number of different things that I wasn't expecting and the first thing I'd say is Intel was absolutely adamant about safety. And I mean, you couldn't even stick your hand out to stop an elevator door from closing. They were like, <gasps> you know, you just don't do that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, and I thought that was good, right? That's a good promise to make to people that are working with you or you're working for, you know, how you're working. Having the importance on safety you needed to show up to work and return home in better shape or the same shape that you came to work in. And that was a great philosophy of Intel. The other thing that it really showed me was one of the technicians that I worked with very early on really kind of dug in. And and when you have problems and it might, you know, you have these huge complex machines that are running things for making an, an incredibly complex device. And he just said, you know, When you have a problem, if you go in and look at how the equipment for that problem is made and have a deeper understanding, that's going to help you come up with the solution to that problem. So that was a a key learning that I had from that as well. And then just to to ramp different technologies and how little that you need to change things in a process flow that cause all the other steps to have to match to that. So there were some really good key learnings I got.
0: One of the things that I took away from our... Previous conversations is, you know, the solar industry was still very much in the lab. Intel's very much in the market, commercializing products that had IP behind them, et cetera. So you got, you could, you looked behind the veil at what it looks like to have an IP engine, right? An IP uh, warehouse, if you will. But you also mentioned that you had access to technology and equipment that, frankly, the solar industry maybe didn't even know about, right? And that you weren't even sure how to get out of those labs and apply to the solar industry. Let's talk about that and how ultimately this is what uh, I think, as I understand it, kind of converted your career into uh, that of an inventor applying technology from the high-tech industry to solar.
1: Absolutely. So yeah, this was a a really good point. For the group that I was put into at Intel was called the Ion Implantation Group. And basically, an INM planner is a particle accelerator where it takes a specific element and accelerates it at half the speed of light and crashes it into the surface of the silicon, but in a very specific spot. And looking through the IC industry, originally, they used equipment similar to the solar industry, diffusion furnaces and very um, common process equipment but had evolved to use this ion implanter to do all this great stuff with it. And to me, I thought, wow, this this could really be something that reshapes solar. And it was different than what was being done in other places like Germany, because they really didn't have a a core focus ion implant company. So once that seed was planted for me to to really apply ion implantation into uh, the solar field, then i had to figure out how i was going to do this and at that time there was a, a big startup going on for solar world that was starting uh, to take over a plant that had been i think it was 400 million dollars that they had spent by komatsu to to build this big factory in oregon and solar world right. ended up getting it for like 10 million bucks and right you know eight months or ten months of free utilities and just ridiculous deals, you know, back in the, the in the mid 2000s. And so once I made that decision and had talked with the guys at Varian about what the, the applicability could be, then I wanted to jump into the solar industry and, and see if I could get that going. And once I got in with, I ended up joining in with SolarWorld for a little bit and did a little bit of their bifacial technology, saw where they were trying to go with things, but it didn't really feel like there was the opportunity to innovate with them on such a a, a very uh, disruptive scale, and at that time, I was called by my old PhD advisor Ajit Rahatki, saying that you know, hey, Georgia Tech's telling me I got to start a company, and we're gonna you know base it on the research and work that you had done during your your graduate school work days. Fantastic, and so. I thought, okay, that's good. That actually gives me maybe an angle to come in and say, "Hey, let's try this." <laughs> you know, let's go to this. And so, ultimately, that's that's when it ended up happening. And I got the opportunity to to go work with Soneva and and have a lot of fun doing this development.
0: So it was at Saniva effectively, that you invented this new category known as ion implanted solar cells. Is that accurate?
1: Absolutely. And you know, the thing the thing that I take away from that that I remember the most is it was really a lot of fun. And from an accomplishment standpoint, it was really unique in that from the day that we thought about it was probably like April of 2008 to the time we were at 150 megawatts worth of production, which was the full capacity of Cineva at that time, was by October of 2010. So in about 28 months, from first concept basically all the way through full production was a little over two years. And that happened because there was a lot of great people, and a lot of good people working on it in the U.S., and there was a lot of motivation to do that.
0: There's a lot of politics, and sometimes politics play into how science is presented to the public. Can we talk a little bit about how the world of corporate politics can, for a person like you who's prepared himself, drive you to entrepreneurship? And Let's talk about XSI and the evolution of Ben Damiani that has led to solar inventions. I'd like, uh, I'd like to get to sort of modern day, how you've taken what you learned at, well, in your PhD and at Cineva and turned it into what stands to be a a disruptor once again.
1: Yeah, I think, and actually this actually touches again a little bit with the time at Cineva, you know, early on those first two years, it was so much fun. I mean, Mm -hmm. money was not a concern. We had plenty of money in the bank. And so Showing up to work in a lab that was basically like you know getting the Christmas all over you know every day when you come to work. Some nights I was so excited I couldn't sleep before I went to work the next day, just because that level of innovation was happening, and you know it ended up changing things where things maybe didn't happen the way that I would like them to. And you touched on it saying the the political background. There ended up being this push and pull within Varian and Soneva on who owned and could commercialize the technology that was developed, right? right. Varian being
0: true. the company that you had pulled out of uh, out of your Intel days into Suniva to, to do the ion implanting.
1: Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so they owned the equipment and the innovations that happened on the equipment, and then Suniva owned the technology and how that got ranked into a, a good right. solar cell, right? But in order for Varian to be able to sell their equipment, they really needed to sell the process as well because mm. it's complex, right? I mean, it's right. a particle accelerator. And so that's where the politics kind of took some shifts that ultimately gave me a lesson that, you know, showed the power of both technology and business having to kind of come in the same direction. And it ultimately pushed me to thinking that I wanted to have a lot more of a say in what the business direction was for technology to go in. And I didn't feel like there was a, a really. Great balance. a lot of solar companies were struggling with being, in my opinion, way too business oriented or way too technical oriented. And both of those paths could lead you down a poor outcome or not the optimized outcome. So I started looking at you know how can I have more influence on this, you know and and do that and and make sure some of my next innovations would reach their full potential and continue to to shape the industry. And that's what led me to try and do XSI Solar and came out of uh, a time where I got to work in France and get to see some more great companies that were doing great things, but just weren't commercializing it because of the same thing. You know, not having that right balance between technology personnel and business personnel on the same foot.
0: Yeah, and just so that folks can understand, uh, the, the quick version, I guess, of XSI is stand up a manufacturing base based on the innovations that you uh, were were involved in and that you were seeing in the industry, working with major manufacturers to reduce the number of steps it takes to produce the solar cell. Is that accurate?
1: Right, and the the big thing was when I first started XSI was in about two thousand and. 2013, 2012, the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. And my big dream at that time was to do bifacial. I, I was trying to apply for wow. DOE grants to be like, hey, you know, Sun Power's got it pretty under control with the single side light absorption. It's going to be hard for anybody to catch or beat them. I, I feel confident they know what they're doing. But this bifacial, hey, this, this is, you can get 20, 30% more power if you just allow light to come in on the back side. So I put a lot of effort, and I and Implant actually contributed a lot to simplifying that as well because it was a single-side process device. And so it was a natural direction for me. But getting access to $15 million in 2012, 2013, that was the beginning of the solar winter with China coming into the (laughs) market and flooding things. So I ended up pivoting and going along the lines of – trying to just have a establish a, a manufacturing base that was still innovative, but didn't need a huge amount of capital. In fact, I think we ended up building our factory out for about $350,000 wow. to do the, the final five steps. So the back backend um, screen printing. And we just, we, we were working with uh, what is now becoming a lot more common, these uh, multi-wire technologies. But at that time, there weren't many places you could go to get a solar cell that didn't have a bus bar on it. Hard to measure. So that's where we focused there.
0: So Ben, in a minute, I want to talk about what you're doing now, a solar company called Solar Inventions, and how you and Bill are teaming up. But before we do that, we'll take a quick foray away into a, a segment I call Hot or hype. Uh, It's interesting that you just mentioned uh, bifacials because I had uh, unbeknownst to you added that to my my list. (laughs) I want to hear a doctor in electrical engineering's thoughts on this. So we'll go through uh, five different topics. You'll spend 30 to 60 seconds. Tell me whether you think it's hot or hype and why. Okay. Sounds good. All right. We'll start with the first, which is microgrids.
1: Microgrids. I feel like those are a hot item. I think it The way that solar and storage kind of work together, they kind of go into supporting some more microgrids and just for better continuity of power delivery for people having a microgrid is going to provide, I think, some very interesting and compelling options
0: for people to go with. So the second topic in hot or hype, vehicle to grid, the nexus of distributed energy and e-mobility, hot or hype?
1: I think that is a very hot item in many respects. Whether or not it's going to fully take command of or, or be a big segment of the industry, that will be determined probably more by policy than anything else. But it seems like the energy that could be stored in a percentage of vehicles, say 10% of the vehicles on the road were electric, there's more than enough energy there to put yeah. back into the grid. So the practicality of it as an engineer, I'd like to say very hot, <laughs> you know, but the reality of it will be interesting to see what if people are willing to share their electrons.
0: Indeed, indeed. Well, one of the technologies that might help with that, and I'd love your thoughts on it, blockchain as it relates to energy, hot or hype?
1: Blockchain, I, I have to go here with a little bit of hype just simply because as a as a pure physicist kind of guy, I'm not as familiar with what blockchain really would bring to the market and the interesting comment that i've heard about it in the last little bit was in in some senses you know we already have money that is able to be a a mechanism of trade of these things and so i'm i'm not as knowledgeable on the on the
0: blockchain part of it i'll caveat this with a slight definition but within the context of being able to buy and sell energy freely between different market participants do you believe that transactive energy is hot or hype?
1: I think it's hot. I think that eventually what we could potentially go to on energy trading, and this could be you know, 20, 30 years down the road, 50 years down the road, but the fact that solar in particular gives people the ability to generate electricity themselves almost kind of lends itself to hey, eventually I have more energy than I need. Let me give you some.
0: But it's a, it's as disruptive a model as there ever there were for the utility. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and then finally bifacial modules, hot or hype?
1: Oh yeah, was well, so very hot, right? This is to me, I think the uh, the great opportunity for PV manufacturers still because it's not easy, right? There's a, been a lot of effort to develop a good bifacial technology, but the application, there's you know, there's there's Basically, two applications from my perspective as a, as a solar cell manufacturer, solar module manufacturer, you have a, an installation where you get sun on one side, right, only on top, top down, and then you have applications where you have field applications, walls, or whatever, and you can absorb this ambient light that's scattered. So this is a huge opportunity, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and the more people I talk to about it, and obviously I'm uh, in in my non-Suncast role as a consultant in the industry, I see a lot of information for utility scale. And I think it's easy to argue presently that utility scale is going to be the first adopter in mass of bifacial. Uh, I think it's probably not beyond reason to say that every major utility developer and almost every project I see going in today has either a test row, (laughs) a test block. Everyone is testing bifacial and, you know, led in in large part by companies like Longi, who have made a major, major commitment to bifacial modules. I agree with you. I think it's red hot. It's probably the hottest of the hot topics in our industry right now, but always good to get the perspective of someone who knows more about the physics than I do. If you're a Helioscope fan, you're going to love this because the industry's best design and engineering software platform is now the industry's best sales platform that's right with helioscope's new integrated proposals you can quickly move from input to finished product complete with payback analysis in just minutes and with customizable reports you can build a customer facing proposal that impresses and puts your best foot forward if you didn't know that proposals is out it's in beta now so make sure you reach out and request that it get turned on should be rolling out to the rest of you in the helioscope landia sometime in q1 head to mysuncast.com you can click on the helioscope banner on the home page if you don't know what we're talking about and as a suncast listener you'll be gifted an extra 30 days free trial that's right 60 days to see what helioscope can do for you find out why more solar companies trust helioscope than any other software on the market y'all wonder what would you automate to help your business grow not just bigger but better would it be invoicing reporting project planning sending notifications tracking subcontractors think of all the critical yet tedious tasks that take up so much of your working day wouldn't it be great if they were done automatically for you what if you could do all that and more within a little piece of software? With Powerhub, you can. Powerhub helps you save time and money so that you can do more and focus on what matters. Go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to find out more. Ben, you have transitioned now fully away from XSI in the last uh, year or so. You and Bill have fully leaned into a new venture one you call solar inventions i'd love to hear what you're up to and then i'd like to hear what has been both the easiest and hardest thing that you've discovered in the last year about starting this venture things that were unexpected unexpectedly easy and unexpectedly difficult so
1: for getting involved i ended up coming across bill nussie's path in my efforts with xsi and Bill really helped me uh, instrumentally in getting that wound down and, and, and sold off and a smooth exit coming from that, not growing it out and doing something big and huge. Bill really gave me some different perspectives on looking at it from the business aspect. And, and my whole goal in doing a company like XSI and even what I was doing back at Cineva was to be able to invent, right, and innovate and, and do those things. And Bill was like, hey, that's what we need. That's really the Best commodity, so that's where we need to focus our effort. You know, Bill's as you guys have probably heard on this in a previous Suncast. I mean, he's he's just a really innovative thought leader and hmm. a good person, right? And he approaches things the right way. You know, how do you learn a new industry? Write a book about it and become an expert, then go in and get the industry. And that was a different approach right. than I had seen. And so that was a really exciting point for me. So the hardest thing that I've had being in the solar industry is with the, the cycles in the industry. And I'm a solar cell manufacturer. So I've gone through a couple of these solar winters where all of a sudden the, the price drops or you get this huge flood panels that come on the market. And all of a sudden, what was selling for $4 a watt starts selling for $1 a watt. And then you kind of get steady state for a little while. That was 2012. And then when you hit 2016, all of a sudden it goes from a dollar a watt to $0.30 cents a watt. And it's like, holy moly. And there's no technology breakthrough that caused that change to happen. It's just, there's too much of it on the market. So that that itself can beat you down in the solar industry. And so the most difficult thing was to be able to trust innovating for the solar industry. So that, that was something that Bill and I spent a lot of time on. And I think we had some really exciting early prototypes that we had worked on that I thought would be very uh, useful in the solar industry. That was the most difficult. The heart. the easiest thing was partnering with a guy like Bill and my other partner Greg. Now all of a sudden, I had great confidence in the business part of this business, and I hmm. thought if I can do the right stuff. And my wife was definitely one of the people that was wanted me to be more technical than and not focus so much on the business, you know, doing what I'm good at. I, I didn't realize, you know, fully what she was saying in that brutal honesty <laughs> on part of it. But that was something that. Ended up being the easiest part is once I believed in having the right business minds around this, innovate on top of it and help guide it. I mean, one of the first things that Bill did was shift my thinking on what I thought was the most valuable thing to start with the business to what we're currently doing for solar inventions. And it wouldn't have been, you know, the, the big thing that I, I had originally thought of was more along the lines of solar cell manufacturing, simplification, higher efficiency, better stuff, you know, the really difficult stuff in in solar. What Bill had challenged me with, there was another invention that I had made where it could be adopted on almost any solar cell architecture, whether it be a PERC cell, an aluminum BSF, a bifacial cell, even IBC, those so interdigitated back contact cells. And Even though it might not have been as exciting for me, theoretically, it was the reach, you know, I'm looking at trying to grab 1% of the industry with my new invention to have this great new solar cell process. I was like, yeah, but you can do this thing and you can hit 95% of the industry because you're able to impact every different architecture. And I just thought, and we could do it without a factory. And that was just... Like, hey, that that actually makes a lot of sense. (laughs) So it was really good.
0: Once again, you're trying to disrupt the industry. Help us understand how the work that you're doing right now at Solar Inventions is going to meaningfully change the architecture of how electrons are harnessed on the solar cell itself.
1: The big thing I think that we're looking at to do as Solar Inventions is right now there's a big part of the system has the solar module connected into inverters and optimizers and different parts of the whole array that goes into how it connects in to get turned into AC power. And what we're looking to do is really ask the panel to do more than what anyone else is doing in order to displace maybe some of that downstream electronics and provide different functionality. Because right now, It feels a little bit like we're in the Model T era, right? The same panel that goes in a hundred megawatt solar farm is also the one that goes on top of your house. But the energy needs for both of those places are dramatically different, right? You're not really going to have a chimney shadowing a solar panel in a in a big utility farm, but that's a meaningful impact for residential users. And so, what we're trying to do is we're bringing in some innovation at the panel level that can make the end product more configured for the end user and, and break that up.
0: So your first product is called C3. What does it mean to be a configurable solar cell?
1: So this is really meant to, to highlight three C's, was is configurable current cell. And the goal of what we're doing is to take a little bit more control over how the power gets delivered from each individual solar cell. And what that can do then is... Help with minimizing hot spots. It mm-hmm. can simplify heat resistance losses, so now you can get a little bit more power out from the same cell architecture, whether it's a PERC cell and IBC cell or, a, or an aluminum BSF cell. And just by paying a little bit more attention to how the power flow is, we are able to get some pretty significant benefits on the panel that can impact what the system needs as well. What we're doing is we are materially changing what the cell performance is like starting at the wafer level. But mm-hmm. to realize the full benefit of what we do, you actually have to encapsulate it into the module. So yeah. it's a combination, right? Yeah. The, the, the simple ask on the solar cell itself doesn't fully give you the value of what we've done. And so taking a 330 watt panel, and allowing us to reconfigure how the current goes and resulting in a 336-watt panel without having to significantly change a factory at all in anything other than consumables is instrumental. It's it's the core base of what we're trying to do.
0: So if I'm doing the math, that's somewhere on the order of a 1% to 2% efficiency gain without implementing a new technology on a production line. I mean, that's a radical thought.
1: We think so, and I think the other big thing that we are excited about is it's a step, right? Mm -hmm. It's not the complete roadmap. What do you do next with this technology? Mm -hmm. What more can you do? And that's what has us pretty excited.
0: Let's say LG decides to to be a licensee of this technology. They implement this uh, process and they get 1.5% efficiency gain. That's year one. Is there any additional gain from year two? How does this evolve? Absolutely.
1: So you know, there's a lot more innovation. We feel like this is a shift the way that a normal solar cell is made and fabricated, and it allows for potentially different directions to go. So mm-hmm. if it's important for LG to make the the shadowing performance of a panel be better, there's one direction to go with the technology. If it's more important, the power breakdown, so like eliminating bypass diodes, then there's another direction that they can go, or maybe simultaneous. And we're excited to be able to partner up with someone to see where we can take this technology to.
0: Yeah, and the idea of a configurable configurable solar cell is uh, is kind of a radical thought, uh, I think, in today's technology where, you know, PERC cells and uh, other types of innovation have taken two decades uh, to come around. If the panel were, we're going to say, smarter, i.e. you can configure it to do what you want it to do and kind of harness that electricity the way we'd want to do it, not unlike making your home smarter by making things configurable internally and being able to control them. What do you see downstream that can be eliminated? Where could you save in the balance of system?
1: So I think that one of the next thoughts that I really want to focus on is in in the same sense that we're in a Model T era of solar cells. Hmm. The other aspect of it is we're almost like a Christmas tree light too. You know, whatever happens to one cell on a panel, that happens to the whole thing. So those old Christmas tree lights where if one light goes out, the whole string goes out, that's a little bit limiting and, and we need to put in a lot of electronics to compensate for that, right? Max PowerPoint tracking. and.
0: Sorry, and this is where companies like SolarEdge have given the industry a lot and being able to harness, harness the extra power through uh, various ways of bucking and boosting power or different ways of harvesting electricity because essentially what you just said is if a solar cell loses thirty percent of its power, effectively the module loses thirty percent of its power.
1: Right. Without having the additional electronics to, you know, smartly switch over and do those things. And so if we can create a wafer level or a cell level solution, the other there's a, there's a couple of ripple effects that we see. One, typically electronics last about 10 years in in a good case scenario, whereas the solar module lasts 25, but really there's plenty of examples at 35 years of production. And so if we do the solution at the panel level and it, it has that same material lifetime, we can really make the installations of solar cells much more simplified and, yeah, last a lot longer.
0: Let's transfer the knowledge now, not just yours, but of your mentors, advisors, friends, uh, counsel. What are some key lessons and takeaways from the most important mentors in your life or career?
1: You know, one of the things I have to go to a book, you know, one of the ones, and I don't think you and I've talked about this, but a a huge person, and I actually thought I was named after this guy growing up was Ben Franklin. (laughs) And, you know, uh, I quickly discovered I wasn't. (laughs) But I think what he did and what he represented for the U.S. really ended up having some significant contributions for how I thought about things. And he, you know, was a great inventor. He also understood the power of print, media, and perception, right? You know, Farmer's Mm -hmm. Almanac was one of the things that he put out there. And he was constantly trying to self-improve himself. And I think he has a lot of mantras that really had a strong influence on what I try to be as I get older, right? Not just being technically aware, but also socially aware mm. and having that curiosity. You know, sometimes you don't have to be formally educated to ask good questions. And mm. and I think so he's a, he's a big part of that. Another area where I, I think I've benefited from great mentors is actually my brothers and sisters. And my, my dad had passed away when I was really young and I'm the youngest of seven. And I've got some incredible brothers and sisters that have, gone on to do great things and and one of the the really shaping parts for me was my I'm the youngest but the youngest daughter was about 8 years older than I was and wow. she made it a point when I was 5 years old to make sure that I came into kindergarten knowing and being as smart as anybody like she taught me multiplication facts and how to write my name and do different things so when I when I started my kindergarten experience, I was already well ahead of the game. And that just continued that path of feeling like, hey, one of my assets is being a good mm-hmm. student. And that was hugely impactful on my life. And so you know, that, there's a lot of different instances I can give you from my brothers and sisters, but they were, they were great for me.
0: What has you most excited been as a scientist about where the solar growth in the market is and, and where solar is going? What corners are you looking around?
1: So I think this is an area where I think most everybody in the solar industry were excited about storage coming on, Mm -hmm. right? Because I think without storage, we saw in Germany that about 6% of the market penetration could happen without any kind of storage. And then that kind of said, well, that's a pretty good balance for peak shaving and gets you done. But once storage comes in, then it's like, what's the cheapest way to generate energy so that you can store it so you can use it at a useful time? And so that's a really exciting thing for me. And I and I think it has some really far-reaching impacts and implications that we probably will talk about as we finish up here.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you, Ben. Storage is probably the most exciting piece of our business right now. It's funny, it doesn't have anything to do with harnessing power at the solar cell level and delivering it. It has everything to do with what to do with all the power we could harness. I'm super excited. I'd love to see... What kind of inventions come from solar inventions that either enable or uh, directly harness storage? That'd be fun. I'm sure you guys are thinking about it. Ben, as we move into the uh, the final leg here of our journey, I want to talk about your learning, leadership, and legacy. I'd love to know what book or series of books, we've talked about a bunch, but in particular, is there a book that you have recommended or given away the most and why?
1: So two of them, one, one is the Benjamin Franklin book, just because, I mean, Is that the autobiography? Yes. Okay. Actually, it's the Ben Franklin by Walter Isaacson. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just, he's such a remarkable person that we can all find things that we can identify with and what we can do better. And that's just something that I, I think he's a a really good example. The other one is a little bit different kind of plays to my sense of adventure. And that's the river of doubt. Mm -hmm. And that's a, by Candace Millard. And that talks about Theodore Roosevelt after he loses his bid for president, a second um, round in office as president, as an independent party. He actually joins an expedition to go explore the last tributary of the Amazon down in South America. And what struck me about the book is a great sense of adventure. I love that. Hmm. You know, the man who is arguably the most powerful person in the world, right? The number one guy in the U.S., He goes and joins a band of 30 people, and he's probably like second, third, or fourth in command on this small little expedition. And I think it's, you know, life calls on you sometimes. Sometimes being a great leader is being a follower. And I think, you know, that's another book that I just, it's just amazing to know the story of what he does. So that's another great book.
0: Ben, what habit or consistent practice has had the greatest impact on your life?
1: The biggest thing, and this is, I, I actually get a little tingles actually thinking about Answering this is it's asked questions. You know, that is something that when you're meeting someone new, asking questions and being in, in, in knowing who they are, it, it develops a good rapport with that person. When you are investigating something new from science, right? Asking the question like, what would happen if I did this? That has huge impacts. Mm-hmm. And then when you're getting exposed to someone that has invented something or you're learning something new for the first time, a lot of times when you ask questions, you really show that you're able to understand and get the, the, the true meaning or a really good, strong depth of understanding. And I think there's just so much benefit that comes from asking questions. This has been strange for me this whole time answering your questions because <laughs> by nature, I just I like to ask questions. I, anyone, every, in, everywhere. It's just something that I, I, I try to live by.
0: Well, I'll give you the opportunity. What question would you have for me? You've put a lot of time
1: and great effort and I am definitely someone that once I came across your path, I've enjoyed listening to your interviews. What's the kind of feedback that you like to get when
0: you complete an interview,
1: Hmm. both from a listener and maybe from the
0: person that you interviewed? So I realized that I would thrive doing podcasts because I'm a voracious reader of autobiographies. And the reason is because I love learning about why people make the decisions they make and how they cultivate their life. Essentially, I want to learn how to be a better person and I learn vis-a-vis understanding how others are trying to shape their life. The best feedback I get, and I can handily say that the person who has understood this without me having to say it um, um, remarkably is uh, Andy Klump. The best feedback I get is from guests and listeners who say, I think I understand what Nico's getting at. And you really should talk to this person. It's that ex it's that next uh I'm a junkie. It's that next hit, right? So for me, I genuinely mean it in my intros and outros when I ask the Suncast audience to recommend more people I can interview, because I can't there's a, there's billions of people on the planet. I can't possibly like I can't satisfy my desire to learn more about how people think. Uh so yeah, the greatest compliment is to say, God, I really enjoyed this, and I think that this other person should be on your show. Uh, I don't know. That may sound self-serving, uh, but genuinely, like the thing that uh, fuels me is hearing feedback from the audience and from guests that say, you know, why don't you ask this question? Or I'd really like to learn this thing, and I'd like to hear you and your approach dig into a conversation with this person. It's a compliment to my style. It's a compliment to the show, and uh, it's self-perpetuating. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, you know, I
1: think as we've gone through this interview, it's something that, you know, one of the things that I wanted to get out and and to talk about that, you know, because in in going through this and what do I have that's interesting to say or anything like that, it's hard to say that as a scientist, right? (laughs) right? But, you know, one of the areas of expertise that I've kind of come through was, you know, being involved from a cost perspective on what it takes to make a solar cell. And and everybody always asks me like, hey, does it make sense to manufacture here in the US versus in China? And I think when when you really break down what's driving the cost on solar panels going forward, that's something that when you look at the technology trend is to go towards thinner and thinner wafers. And in order to do that, that really is another notch in the bank for the bifacial solar cell. And if you don't have that bifacial solar cell, hmm. then you need this disruptive breakthrough metallization technology that's been trying to come for many, many years and just hasn't. So one of the things that I would say as far as, you know, more so than what I can see from a business perspective of a market opportunity, hmm. what I see from a technology perspective is in order to get to that thinner and thinner solar cell, which reduces the cost, right? Because the cell is a big component, then that is tied at the hip with a bifacial type technology so that was one thing that you know i thought you know with how you've engaged and, and asked questions there's yeah. there's not much of a message sometimes on what i want to get out there but that was something that i wanted to put out
0: i love it That's some parting thoughts for uh, from, yeah. from dr ben damiani ben if folks wanted to find you uh, are you engaged on twitter linkedin what's the easiest way for folks to engage yeah,
1: I'm on LinkedIn and I have Twitter. I'm not as uh, prolific as many people are with that, mm-hmm. but I'll, I'll try to do more. But do, you have a, do
0: you have a handle on Twitter that I would be able to tag with the, with the show? Yes, I do, at well, Ben Damiani. And I'll link to your LinkedIn. Uh, the website is www.solarinventions.com and your email is?
1: Ben at solarinventions.com.
0: Ben, if you hadn't asked for the Suncast audience, what might that be? I think we need to get your message out there a
1: lot more, Nico. I think this is something that, you know, I, I use, I'll listen to your podcast as I do repetitive work. Like if I'm stringing up a new module or making some repetitive measurements and different things like that. So it's, it's helpful. You know, one of the things that is unique to solar, it's part of a enormous industry going forward. It also is very resistant to change. And so Having other people out there fighting the fight to get the change to happen and do those things, it's a great thing. I, I appreciate the, the work that you're doing and, and hope that more and more people get to listen and, and get exposed to it. Thanks, Ben.
0: So there you have it, Solar Warriors. Ben's ask of you is that you get the message out, share the show. I'm grateful for that. Always grateful for your listening. As we round uh, to home base here, let's end the show with as we always do with a bold prediction. Ben, what one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball?
1: So I think one of the things that is really interesting with storage, but electric vehicles in particular is what it points to is really a shift in what is going from AC to DC power. So we've all grown up with an industry where all of our power is AC, but cars represent a huge Mm. energy sink for DC power. We have cell phones that are DC power. We have laptops that are DC power. We have remote lighting applications, and I think what what's going to be different is I think this whole transition to electric vehicles and solar energy represent a potential shift in a significant part of our industry to go more DC.
0: That is indeed a controversial and uh, and thought provoking prediction by Dr. Ben Damiani. Chief technologist and scientist, founder, co founder of Solar Inventions, inventor, and friend. Thank you for being on Suncast today, sir. My pleasure. Hey, warrior, it's the holidays. So, since you're already in the giving spirit, I'd be honored if you'd give Suncast a rating and review in iTunes. I don't ask for this a lot, but it really does make a difference on discovering this show. By others, and the holidays is a time where lots of folks are in the discovery mode. Better yet, if you share your favorite episode with a colleague, friend, or family member, I'd be honored just as well. If you've learned anything from today's episode, I'd love to know about it, and others would too, so please do share. If you would like to learn more about Ben Damiani, his research, website, and more, then head over to my blog at mysuncast.com for the show notes which we are starting to improve, links that he mentioned, his incredible book recommendations, and more. While you're on the website, I would like to encourage you to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I share my thoughts on each episode and pass along interesting tidbits I've dug up in my ever-increasing quest to be relevant on Twitter. (laughs) If you are in the Suncast tribe, please keep an eye out for this week's exclusive content that I teased out Ben and I discuss a new kind of solar panel degradation called light-enhanced temperature-induced degradation. We go into its impacts, what to look for, and what the future holds. Next week, as I mentioned, there won't be any new content. Instead, we'll be highlighting one of the most downloaded and discussed episodes of the year. And if you're all caught up on Suncast, I want to take a moment to highly recommend Amy Westervelt's Drilled podcast. Seriously, I cannot recommend this highly enough. It's billed as a true crime podcast about climate change, illuminating the facts of the most elaborate and most effective propaganda campaign of the century, climate denial. Seriously, this has been the thing I've been obsessing over on my runs and my workouts and my dishes time at midnight. I'm serious. This podcast is, is just crazy good. I think that uh, Amy deserves some sort of a a clean tech podcast award. <laughs> this thing is amazing. All right. In the meantime, I look forward to interacting with you via Twitter, LinkedIn, inside the Suncast Tribe communication channels. Quick shout out to the newest tribe members, Blair Kendall, Dan Jofrida, and Josh Brumstead. Thanks for your patronage. It really does matter. Solo Tribe, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And if you're not yet a member, I look forward to someday welcoming you into the tribe as well, my friend. And thank you for showing up. It's half the battle.